Well, good morning. Like Pastor Kim said, um, Pastor Drew is on vacation. He's with family in Texas right now, but he is tuning in. He is watching us right now live online. So on the count of three, will you join me and say, hi, Pastor Drew. Ready? One, two, three. Hi, Pastor Drew. I hope Pastor Drew and anybody else who is uh, watching online um, feels a part of what God's doing here this morning. And wasn't worship amazing? That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, If Pastor Drew were here, he'd be giving a year-end financial update, so I'm going to do that briefly before we dive into the message. So I want to let you know where we're at. You might have received an email on Friday saying we were just under um, uh, $695,000 towards our $1.2 million and change goal for the month of December. They're going to put a slide up and tell you where we are now. Uh, those of you who know Melissa, she's my assistant. She's amazing. She came in late yesterday and opened all the mail that came in over the weekend to, to, to add to the total. And we are now at $813,000, uh, which is phenomenal. That is unbelievable. Now, before you get, you know, a little bit concerned and you look at that big number of 1.2 million, um, let me just tell you that that is a, that's based on what the generosity of this church has done in the past. So that's, that's not like this huge far-reaching goal. That's what you've done in the past. And so um, that's where our goal is for this year. And um, it's amazing just how much uh, donations come right at the end of the year. And honestly, I wish it wasn't like that. I I wish it wasn't. It makes budgeting really challenging, but we're no different than most churches in the nation, and we're up to 20% of ministry funding comes in the last month of the year. Uh, So that's where we're at. So will you prayerfully consider giving, um, because our ministry next year, that how we start out the next year is dependent upon how we finish this year. And you'll have an opportunity to give later in the service, so I hope you prayerfully consider that. So thank you for that. Um, Now turning to what we're going to be talking about today, if you've been joining us at all in December or watching online, you'll know that we've been in a sermon series, our Advent sermon series called Arrivals and Destinations. And the word Advent literally means arrival. And, And it was the first Advent that even causes us to have the season that we're in right now where we're celebrating the fact that Christ came, the Messiah came 2,000 years ago, and, and that's what this is all about. And in this sermon series, we've been, you know, what does that mean for us? What does that arrival mean for us? And then also, like, trying to bring it to today's context. And, you know, how, how, what does that mean to us, you and me today? And, and, and looking at God's arrival, but then also looking at, you know, what are we doing to prepare for arrival. And so in our sermon series, we've been looking at how to, how to prepare, how to invite arrival and people coming and how to prepare for that and how to receive. And last week, if you were here and you heard Pastor Drew, he, he talked about abiding, the importance of abiding. What does that mean for you and I to, to be fully present? And today we're going to talk about remembering the importance of remembering and how that affects you and I as we follow God in this life of faith, as we endeavor to follow Jesus every day, everywhere, with everyone. I mean, remembering is so key to that. And I'm excited about the text that we're going to be diving into. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be reading 
uh, beginning in verse 46. And let me set the stage while you're turning to your Bible. There's a pew Bible in the seat in front of you. Uh, Let me set the stage for what this is. This is actually a few months before Jesus comes on the scene. This is a scene in which a young Jewish girl, Mary, she's pregnant, and, and she is going to see a relative, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is also pregnant, and she will give birth to John the Baptist. And so Mary comes, and, and, and Elizabeth and Mary are there, and, and Elizabeth says something like, like, who am I that the mother of my Lord comes to see me? And she and Mary are just marveling in this moment and they're praising God and this is the stage in which verse 46 begins. And Mary begins to sing a worship song. So read with me, beginning in verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. She's bursting out in song and bringing glory to God and and she's recounting and remembering what God has done for her. What God has personally done for her She's remembering and recounting and reflecting on that and praising God, how he personally chose her. She says, I'm just this lowly person and I get to be a part of God's master plan here. The advent of his kingdom of God, the Messiah, I get to be a part of that. And she's thanking God for that. And she's also remembering other things that that God has done for her because she said, for he has done great things for me. Things plural. She doesn't list what those are. But I want to point out that the the very beginning here, we see Mary remembering God's faithfulness to her personally. But then she continues. She continues in verse 50 and it says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now, in this next section, where the beginning part, she's thanking God and she's remembering all that God has done for her. Now she's remembering what God has done for others as well. And she talks about from generation to generation, you've been faithful. I'm I'm remembering how amazing you are, God. Throughout history, and this phrase right here where it says, um, strength with his arm." That's highly symbolic language. Now, when you and I read this, it just, we might just read right over that, but somebody hearing Mary sing this song or reading these words in Mary's context would know immediately what she is remembering and what she is referring to. See, this is highly symbolic language and it's referring to other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Now, you and I, I mean, we have these nice Bibles that are really put together well, and, um, you know, it's all in one place, and we have books, and, and the books have chapters, and we have numbers that help us find specific verses. Um, we even have page numbers that help us find out where we're at in the Pew Bible. They didn't have that. 
They had all of the Old Testament, so there was lots of scripture that they had that they knew. And, and the way that they would find stuff, the way that they would refer to stuff is they would use highly symbolic language. Like a lot of times, like for example, we have, we have the Psalms have numbers. So we know when we want to go to the 23rd Psalm that it's the 23rd Psalm. But what they would do is they would often refer, refer to key verses or key phrases that would alert the listener to the entire passage or the entire concept. And so a lot of times the first verse of a psalm would alert somebody that we're talking about the entire 23rd Psalm. In the same way there were key phrases that would, would, would key people into a particular thought or particular passage of Scripture and this idea of the strength of your arm or the, some translations say God's outstretched arm or the power of his arm, anybody hearing Mary sing that song would know immediately that she is remembering that God is a creative God and God is a saving God. How is that, you ask? Well, well for example, anybody hearing that would immediately know that she is talking about the prophet Jeremiah where multiple times in the book, God himself and the prophet refer to God as creating the entire world and everything in it by the power of his arm. So she is remembering not only what God has done for her personally, not only the faithfulness of generations, but, but she is remembering that he is a creative God. And the other key thing that anybody would be alerted to when hearing that is creation, but then also salvation. And very specifically, the way that God delivered his people out of Egypt. All throughout the Old Testament, whether it's in Deuteronomy or Exodus or Psalm or Isaiah, even in the New Testament where a young Jewish scholar, the Apostle Paul, in Acts 13 refers to this, all throughout Scripture, when there is a reference to the power of God's arm, the strength of his arm, it's referring to the Exodus and how God took his people out of bondage and oppression and slavery in a miraculous way. And if you were here in the fall and you've heard the first part of our Exodus series, we, we really unpacked that. And it was marvelous, it was unbelievable, and it, was, it changed the whole course of history. So when Mary is, is, is singing this song, she's, she's thanking God and remembering all that he has done, not just for her, but, but who he is and what he's done for everyone. And then she continues in verse 52. If you look at 52. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now what's interesting in this last section of her, her song, she's thanking God for, for these things and you look at these things and, and the reality is this is also highly symbolic language. And, and, and we may not catch it, but anybody listening to this would know that what she's talking about is the advent of the kingdom of God as it comes through the promised Messiah. 
So this has been promised and, and, and there's, there's, there's hopeful expectation that this Messiah is going to come and that, and that when he comes, there's this new kingdom that is established where the old paradigms are completely switched around and what it means to be in a position of power is, is switched around and what it means to be rich or poor and that justice is going to come and, and, and the brokenness of the world, things are going to be set right in this new kingdom. And that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened. She's pregnant with Jesus. And it's, it's not just for the Jewish people. The Messiah wasn't just, in fact, the, the prophet Isaiah talks about how when this comes, when this kingdom comes, when this savior's gonna come, it's actually, there's gonna be justice and power and salvation for all nations, the entire world. And you and I are beneficiaries of that today because when Jesus came, God in man form, and he lived life on this earth and he performed ministry and miracles, but then went to a cross and willingly gave up his life so that he could pay for our sins. His shedding of blood covered our sins that was for us. You know, if we're told that we believe in our hearts that Christ was raised from the dead and, and confess with our mouth that he is Lord, then, then we are saved. And that's all part of this future reality for Mary at that moment when she's singing this song. So this is a beautiful pattern. This is a beautiful pattern where where Mary is remembering and recounting God's faithfulness very personally to her in very specific ways. She's remembering God's might and his power and how he's blessed her, but then she's remembering that he's a creator God and he's a saving God and he delivers people from oppression and slavery and bondage. And then she's also thanking God for something, a reality that hasn't taken place yet. So it's a beautiful pattern for you and I, a beautiful pattern for us to, to, to put into practice how we remember and how we praise and how we magnify God. And here's what's really interesting about this passage. So Luke, who is the author of this gospel, he does something really interesting uh, to make sure that we pay attention to this song, that it is, it's something that grabs our attention. He uses a literary tool that would have brought a bunch of highlight. It would have just caused this to jump off the page or caused the hearer to be like, whoa, that's important. I need to pay attention to it. it, it it's similar to like, um, you know, when you're reading a news article online on your mobile device or, or maybe on your computer and you're reading a news article and you're going through in the, in the middle of a paragraph there is one of the sentences, it's still part of the, the, the news article, but one of the sentences or maybe a phrase is highlighted and it's a hyperlink. Have you ever seen that? So what you're doing is you're reading this, this story, you're reading this news article, but in the middle of it, there's this, this statement, there's this hyperlink that you know that if you click on it, it will actually, it's like bringing attention to it and it will say, hey, there's more here. There's more here if you're interested. Pay attention to this, and if you click on it, it probably opens another article and unpacks things a little bit more. 
but it serves to bring the reader's attention. Now, the author Luke does that very same thing. He uses this literary tool to make sure that we pay attention to this. At the beginning of Luke, he starts um, and he's, he's recording this in narrative form. He, it, it's, it's, he's storytelling. The, the, the way he's writing is, is, is it's a story. He's, he's using narrative form before Mary's song. And then right after Mary's song, he goes back to narrative. So he's telling the story and then he stops and he changes the way he writes. He completely changes the way that he records this song. It's like a cutscene in a movie where all of a sudden we do a flashback and we see something happening real time. That's what Luke is doing here. So he's telling the story and then he stops and he changes the way he's writing so that the listener or the reader, it's as if they were hearing Mary sing the song themselves. And what's interesting about that is not only does it bring focus because it's a change up and it's like, whoa, we better pay attention to this. But what's interesting is the way he's recording her song, every one of the actions that Mary is saying God is doing is recorded, she is singing it in the past tense. It's actually considered the perfect past tense is if you want to get all nerdy and look it up or the grammar, it's, it's meaning this is a past event that is completed. She is singing every one of the actions that she's ascribing to God in the past, and it's completed. And you're like, wait a second, that, that doesn't make sense because we just went through the song and yeah, she's thanking God for things that he's done in her past for her. She's thanking God for things he's done in the past for all of us. Uh, but then she's thanking God for things that haven't happened yet. But you're saying Luke is writing this in the past tense like it's all already done did Luke get it wrong? Absolutely not. If you were here last week when you heard Pastor Drew speaking out of another passage of Luke, you might recall him saying that of all the gospel writers, the writer of Luke, a physician by trade, was very detail-oriented, very precise. Of all the gospel writers, he, he takes very much care and attention to details like this. Luke didn't get it wrong. Here's what Luke is doing. Even though he's writing this in Greek because he knows the people that are going to read it are going to be reading it in Greek. He is capturing Mary in her Jewish mindset in this moment. You see, because in, in the Jewish language, in the Jewish mindset, it is actually possible to remember the future. Now, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And, and it's, but it's literally in the language. There are cases, there are construct, constructs of the language in which the meaning of a verb and its tense, whether it's future tense or past tense or whatever, the meaning and the tense can actually get inverted. And in these cases, and they actually call it vav conversion. I only had two years of Hebrew. If I got that wrong, then please forgive me. But, but look it up. It's, it's really unique and so in the Jewish language, it is actually possible to remember the future. And so she is 
she is thanking God for the advent of his kingdom as it plays out on the earth. And, and she's considering it a done deal. Now, it seems kind of bizarre, and that doesn't make any sense to us in English. It would be like me saying, Pastor Kim, you made me feel so special. It meant so much to me when you came up and gave me that big hug next Tuesday. <laughs> That's literally what Mary is doing. Now, I know that doesn't make any sense to us. Well, it makes sense in the, in the way that that's how Kim hugs, but, <laughs> but we wouldn't talk like that. But yeah, I would if I was so convinced that her hug happened and it impacted me, and that's what Mary is doing. Mary is remembering the future. She is actually considering it as if it's done. And that's an amazing pattern for us to follow when it comes to remembering. And this whole idea of remembering is so key to this walk of faith. It's so important. There's an intersection. We see it in the song. There's an intersection between the past and the future that is so critical to you and I as we follow out this life of faith. It's so important that the word remember is listed in the Bible around 300 times. Now, unless you can compare it to other things, you don't know if that's a lot or a little. Um, but let's, let's consider the word faith. I mean, wouldn't the word faith be super, super important? Isn't that what this whole life is? Isn't what this whole book is about? Where the word faith is listed 500 times. So the fact that Remember is listed 300 times is, is very significant, but it gets a little bit more interesting. The word pray isn't listed as many times as the word remember. Now, don't you think prayer is a pretty important concept? How about forgive? The word remember is listed twice as many times as the word forgive. But forgiving, that principle is critical. Whether we're receiving forgiveness from God or we're extending forgiveness, forgiveness is incredibly important. What about obey? The word remember is listed 50% more times than the word obey. Here's my point. Remembering is super important to you and I. It's all throughout Scripture. Time after time, we're called to remember. So if remembering is so important, if it's so critical, like how do you and I do that? How do we like live that out practically speaking? I mean, do we just like commit to, I'm going to remember more, I'm going to remember better, I'm going to be like Mary. What can we do to help if it's so important? Well, here's where I want to take us to one more text this morning. And if you'll turn with me to Joshua chapter 4. And I love how gritty and practical the Bible can be at times. And I believe that this next text is going to give us some practical steps. You and I, as we are at the end of a year. And at the cusp of a new year. And, and it's some practical steps on how you and I could remember the faithfulness of God. 
and how that can actually shape what we believe about the future because here's, here's the key. What you believe about the past shapes what you believe about the future. You could say it another way. What you remember about the past shapes and impacts what you believe about the future. So remembering is important. So I want some practical tips on how I can do better at this. And I love, like I said, the grittiness and the, the practical nature of this Old Testament passage. It's, it's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. I know I say that a lot. In, in Joshua chapter 4, I'm just going to read a couple verses. Let me set the stage on what this is. The nation of Israel is, has just entered into the promised land. They've just entered into the promised land. So spoiler alert, if you didn't know, we're going to be in Exodus after the first of the year again. Um, but at the end of the story, they finally do get into the promised land. So it's, it's a good thing. They have just crossed over the Jordan River and come into the promised land. And, and this is what God tells them to do in verse 2. Select 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, take 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood, carry them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. Why are we going to do this? Why are we doing this? Well, God tells them in verse 6, so that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones, get this, shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. A memorial forever. So, so what God is instructing them to do is say, hey, look, I want you to do something tangible here as a reminder so that you always remember this day. I want you to do something, and it, it kind of seems, it's kind of practical, it kind of seems a little absurd at first glance, because he says, take, take 12 men, representatives of all 12 tribes of Israel, and, and, and in the middle of the river, each man pick up one stone, so they pick up a stone, can't be huge, because one person would have to carry it, it's probably not a pebble, but this stone, if it were me, it would be a stone, <laughs> and they bring it to the place on the west bank of the Jordan River, where they're camping that night, and they put it down. So we're talking about a pile of 12 stones, depending on the size, maybe this tall. Why would God ask them to do something tangible like that? Like, like I said, on, on the one hand, it seems as if, is it really even necessary? Is it really, how could, like, like if we really knew what this scene looked like, I, I think we'd all agree, they would never forget this day. Never forget this day. They wouldn't need a, a stone. Why is that? Well, because what is happening? Let me, let me paint the scene real quick for us here. There are over a million people that are in the steep hills 
on the east side of the Jordan Valley in what is modern-day Jordan. Now, the Jordan Valley is a steep valley. In the middle, there's the Jordan River, and then on the other side, there's steep hills as well. It's about 80 miles long, so, so to the south of them. So the Israelites are on these hills on the east, and on, to the south of them is the Dead Sea. It's the lowest place on the planet. And the Jordan Valley is actually a rift in the, in the, in the crust of the earth. It's where some tectonic plate action is going on, and it's, it's this rift in the earth that's about 80 miles long between the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Jordan, uh, that follows the Jordan down to the Dead Sea in the south. It's like the distance from Bel Air Church to Santa Barbara. At its greatest point, it's about four to five miles wide. So you have the steep valley with this river, and you have a million people on the east side of the river. And they're told that the priests are going to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and when they put their foot in the Jordan River, the water's going to dissipate, and they're going to be able to walk through. So, you know, I think that sometimes we're guilty of this, myself included, that when we read some of the stories in the Bible, we kind of we think in a fairy tale esque quality. You know, and it's like, okay, so, you know, there's this, this moment and, and the water makes this land bridge and then, and then the, the Israelites come into the west bank of the, the Jordan River. But, but let's be real about this. A million people going through, a, a, this wasn't a tiny section. Think of the logistics of that. I mean, don't we all... In, avoid the 101 and the 405 between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. every day. There's no way on the planet I want to be anywhere close to there. I will take ways through neighborhoods and it it creates because I don't want to, because what happens when you take a lot of people and you try to take them down to a small path? So this wasn't some like cheesy, low budget, made for TV film scene. This is this epic thing that takes place because the text tells us in chapter three that the water was backed up all the way to a town called Adam, 15 miles away. And think of the logistics of a million people, 12 Bedouin tribes, 12 nomadic tribes with all their tents and animals and, and, and family members. They're not camped in this one little section. They're camped all in these hills. And we're told by the text that actually they, they crossed over on dry land because the water was eradicated for 15 miles. And the text actually says they walked through quickly. It was like, whew. And a million people are now on the west side of the Jordan River within eyesight of a fortress called Jericho. This was an epic scene. And so when you read this in chapter 4, you're like, they're never going to forget that day. Why would God have them take these rocks and, and pile up these rocks? I believe it's because God knows how forgetful we are. And sometimes it takes a tangible step for us to make sure we put something in place that we remember who God is. We remember how he's moved on our behalf. We remember when he showed up. 
We remember when he opened a door for us or closed a door. We remember when he brought healing or provision or somebody into our life. We, God knows that we need to be reminded of those things because how I view the past affects how I view the future and that's what's, what's, what is me believing in the future? What is that called? It's, it's called faith. So my faith for the future is dependent upon me remembering the past and so God has them do this kind of this mundane, tangible thing. And here's what's interesting. So they camp on the West Bank. And and I've been there, and I can see, you can see Jericho. It's only a couple miles away, and it's, it's this fortress in the hills on the West Bank. But they camp in the valley. And in a few weeks, God is going to miraculously hand them over that fortress of Jericho. But they're still camped in the valley. And then a few weeks after that, They send a portion of their army farther up in the hills past Jericho, several miles up in the hills to a smaller fortress, town called Ai. But what happens, we find out in chapter 7 of Joshua, is they they were beat terribly. They lost that battle. They lost that battle, and in chapter 7 it says it's like their hearts were like water. It's like... Their, their strength and their hearts just melted inside of them. This whole time, they're still camping down in the Jordan Valley, the place where that pile of rocks was. So the army comes back from Ai, and they've been defeated. And I try, I try to put myself in that mindset, and I try to think of myself as, as one of those soldiers. I'm finally in the promised land. And I just got whooped up on. I just got defeated. And now I'm going back to my camp. And I wonder if I'm feeling pretty low right now. I'm feeling pretty dejected. I've probably got some questions like, God, what's up? I thought this was the promised land. I thought we were supposed to be here. I thought this was... I thought, how could this happen? And yet, if I come back to that camp and I walk past that pile of stones that was piled up a couple weeks ago, I wonder if my outlook would change a little bit. Yeah, I just got defeated, but... And I I, I remember what that stone means. How God moved mightily a couple weeks ago. I have no idea why we just got beat. But I remember how God wiped out 15 miles of water so that a million of us could step into this. I remember the faithfulness of God. I may not understand this situation, but God is good. God is powerful. God didn't bring me this far without having a plan. You see, it's important for us to tangibly put things in place so that you and I don't forget the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. There have been times in your life, I know it, where you know that you know that you know that you know 
that God showed up in your life. I've got some memorial stone moments in my life. One of those was June 21st, 1989. I'll never forget that. Some of you in this room weren't even born yet. But that was the day that I got on my knees and I asked God to forgive me for my sins. And I, I, I said, God, you, Jesus, you're Lord over my life. And God took my addiction away. My life, the, the, the trajectory of my life was changed forever. I will never forget June 21st of 1989. I will never forget August of 2011. August of 2011 was such a huge month for me. It's a pile of memorial stones for me that, that whenever I'm feeling down, whenever I'm feeling discouraged, whenever I need to rally my faith, I look back at that. I look back at that pile called August 11th. See, 10 months before, we're preparing. We live in Springfield, Missouri. I'm wrapping up my seminary degree. We're preparing for the next step wherever God has us going, and we don't know where that is. We don't know where we're going to go in the nation, wherever God calls us. And so Karen and I, my wife and I, we start praying. And I believe we pray, faithfully prayed every day. I'm pretty sure we prayed every single day together for 10 months, and sometimes we included our kids, and we prayed for five things for 10 months that God would give us a church, not just a church for me to minister in, but a church that our family could worship in, and that God would give us a home, because we didn't know where we were going. The housing market in Springfield, Missouri is not like it is here or anywhere, a lot of places in the country, that God would give us a home. We didn't have to buy it, but we just needed a home. Three, that God would give me a job. Because I didn't want to assume that stepping into ministry meant that the church was going to be paying for my salary. So God, we need a, we need a job. We need schools for our kids. Again, we don't know what city we're going to be in. We don't know what the schools are going to be like there. God, will you, will you give us good schools for our kids? And speaking of our kids, we're about to move at the, the worst possible time you could possibly move. Our son Judah is in middle school. It's a horrible time to move. Our daughter Mia is in elementary. The only life she's ever known, the only church, the only home, the only friends she's ever known are in Springfield, Missouri. So, so number five, God, will you, will you give our kids some friends? And I want you to know, in August of 2011, we would move 1,700 miles from Springfield, Missouri to Ventura, California to come alongside a friend of mine who was planting a church there. And did you know in the space of about two weeks, all five of those prayer requests were answered? Every single one. And those were huge things for us. Huge. Those are memorial stone moments for me. And, and this past year, when I've faced difficulty, 2017, when I faced difficulty, I've got the faith to know God's bigger than it. I remind myself, remember how God caught us. We stepped out and God caught us. And took care of that. You know what a faith builder that is? Like, I don't know what 2019 holds. 
but I guarantee you I'm going to I'm going to run into some challenges. There are going to be some times that are uncertain. There may be a time where, like the, like the Israelites, I go up to a little fortress thinking it's a done deal, and I get defeated, and I get chased out of there. There are going to be times when I'm discouraged, and I need to rally my faith, and I want to follow the pattern of Mary. I want to remember all that God has done for me. I want to remember what God has done for all of us. I want to remind myself how important it is to remind ourselves. To re- Again, our, our future belief, what we believe in the future depends on how I remember the past. And when I look back, do I see the faithfulness of God? Do I know that I know that I know that he's shown up? That he's a good God, he's a generous God, he's a creative God, he's a saving God, and he's going to take care of me. What are your memorial stone moments? What are those moments in your life? Where have you seen God show up in this past year? that you know God intersected with your life in a very special way. Can I encourage you to join me with a little bit of a challenge here? And in the same way, it seemed kind of silly for them to do this tangible thing of picking up a rock and making a pile. Will you join me? Can I challenge you in this next week to do something a little different? Some of you, in the next couple of days maybe making New Year's resolutions. And um, I make New Year's resolutions about half the time, and when I do, I keep about half of them. So my track record on New Year's resolutions aren't that great. Maybe, they, maybe you're great at it. Whether you make a New Year's resolution list or not, can I, can I ask you to, to make a different list? Instead of a New Year resolution list, would you join me in making a past year recollection list? Will you take 30 minutes over this next week to just recount some of the ways in this past year that you know God showed up? Or maybe go beyond. Maybe you have some 2011 moments like me. Would you take some stones and would you put them down? Would you record them to remind yourself, to help you remember the importance of the faithfulness of God? And for you, maybe it's, um, I, uh, I don't have those because I actually, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a follower of Christ. I, I, what you're talking about, Greg, I I don't know that I've seen God show up in my life in that way. Today could be that first memorial stone moment for you. Today could be that moment in which, like Mary was singing about this kingdom that would be established because this Messiah, the Savior, would come to this earth, that if we place our faith in him, his sacrifice forgives me, uh, covers my sins, and I'm forgiven, I, I'm righteous because of that, That's, that can be you today. 
That can be you. As I close, I want to read the verse right before Mary's song. And this again, this was when Elizabeth and Mary were marveling in this moment. And right before Mary sings this song, Elizabeth says something. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it. Elizabeth looks at Mary and she says, You are blessed because you believed the Lord would do what he said. How simple is that? You're you're blessed because you simply took God at his word. You believed that he would do what he said. Can we pattern this next year like Mary where we remember what God has done and will we believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do in our future. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Um, These ancient stories, God, how profound. God, we thank you for truth. We thank you how it's transformative. God, I thank you that you have been so good to us individually and collectively, God. We are thankful for you and we do recognize that you are a creative God. You are a saving God. God, help us remember. Help us to be full of faith. Help us to step boldly into 2019 with not some, you know, self-help or hype, but with genuine faith that we believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, that you're a good God and you're going to be right there with us every step of the way. We thank you in advance for that. We consider it done. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen.